Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Vlad Dima to discuss his book, The Beautiful Skin, Football, Fantasy, and Cinematic Bodies in Africa. Thanks for tuning in. The Beautiful Skin, Football, Fantasy, and Cinematic Bodies in Africa is an original and provocative study of contemporary African film and literature. In the book, Vladima investigates how football and cinema express individual and collective fantasies. Shedding new light on both well-known and less familiar films, The Beautiful Skin asks just whose fantasy is articulated in football and African cinema. Answering this question leads Dima to explore body and identity issues through the metaphor of skin, fantasy as a skin, the football jersey as a skin, and ultimately film itself as a skin that has visceral, oral, and haptic qualities. In the neo-colonial context, the body is often depicted as suffering through processes of being flattened or emptied out. So frequently do African cinema and literature reproduce this image of the hollowed body, the body of all skin, that it comes to define neocolonialism. Throughout this book, Dima seeks to answer whether the body of film, the depth of both characters and story within the cinematic skin, could carry us into the post-neocolonial era, an era defined by full bodies and personal affirmation. I'm excited for Dr. Vlad Dima to join us today. He is professor of African Cultural Studies and French at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of Sonic Space and Diapma Betty's films and numerous articles, mainly on French and Francophone cinemas, but also on Francophone literature, comics, American cinema, and television. His third book, Meaninglessness in Postcolonial Cinema, is also forthcoming from MSU Press. Professor Dima, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. I am too. I'm really interested in starting with the sort of general sense of your book, uh, especially insofar as you're bringing together literature, cinema, and football. Could you tell us a little bit about what unites those three interests in the African context? Yes, certainly. I'm actually very much so a cinema specialist, but for my second book, I wanted to expand my uh, the reach of my studies into other artistic forms, such as literature, also consider the value of objects, such as the jersey, the football jersey or soccer jersey. I'm going to keep mixing mixing up the two, even though we, we decided to go with the term football over, over soccer. This book comes out from a simple observation that uh, secondary characters and sometimes major characters in African cinema wear soccer jerseys. And I just started thinking about the reasons why this is. Most uh, African directors that I study are very particular about the way in which they construct the frame, uh, what we call in film studies a mise-en-scene. So it's not an accident uh, that we see so many characters wear various jerseys in the background of the main action of whichever film. I'm actually going to go over some examples, but I just wanted to say that the seed of what I was interested in started from this uh, observation. Um, I'm, I'm, I grew up in Romania. Uh, it's a country where 
we love football. And um, um, as you, as the listeners might know, football is the king sport everywhere else but, but the United States. So uh, secondary sort of origin to this project was uh, some of my own trauma as a child watching football and sort of what, uh, uh, <laughs> what went well and didn't go well with the national Romanian soccer team and things like that. So I just wanted to investigate a little more the effect that the game had on my own upbringing, but really through the prism of African cinema. I'm not, you know, I, I don't talk about anything uh, related to Romania. This is just sort of the impetus uh, behind, the, behind the project. Football does appear in quite a few major films uh, from, from Africa. And even, I, mean, I guess when I say Africa, I should be a little more specific. My area really is restricted to Sub-Sahara and Francophone Sub-Sahara in particular, kind of going all the way to Central Africa and Cameroon. So to give you a couple of examples of the films that I'm studying in this, uh, in this, in this book, there are actually, there are very few books that have soccer um, as the main topic. There's really actually one book and one, uh, one movie that really centrally locate in the plot, the game itself. So in 1994, a movie called The Golden Ball uh, by Sheikh Dukure from Guinea investigates sort of looks at one He's basically a child, you know, on the verge of being a, a teenager. His dream of playing football and uh, going to Europe and making it at the big club in Europe. This is like the trajectory of the film. It's also the trajectory of uh, of the fantasy. I think we'll come back to the question of fantasy later. But so this film is concerned with what football means locally in Africa in 1994. The other side of the story that goes beyond film, and I, I really wanted to include, like I said before, I wanted to expand my intellectual reach to other genres, is the novel by Fatou Diom, The Belly of the Atlantic, from uh, 2006. Uh, Fatou Diom is a French Senegalese writer. And in this uh, novel, the main character, Sally, lives in France, and her younger brother is still back in Senegal on one of the islands uh, off the coast of Dakar. And he, Madike, this her younger brother, dreams uh, of making it to Europe as a footballer. And he idolizes one particular player, an Italian, Paolo Maldini, who at the time uh, was playing for AC Milan, one of the major clubs in, in Italy. So even in itself, like that example that I just gave, that, that's fascinating to me. I, I wanted to understand more about what are the major clubs that are represented cinematically and also what are the major players that film or literature talks about, mentions, and to whom one might attach this fantasy of playing football in Europe. There are several other examples in which football is, again, a little bit in the background of the story, but it's also perhaps plays an integral part in, in, in some other films because the next example, Timbuktu from 2013 by uh, Abderrahman Sisakov, there is a, a fantastic football scene in which a number of uh, young boys play without the ball. The ball has been confiscated by Islamist extremists, uh, actually, in Timbuktu, and yet they proceed to play without this ball and still have fun. And there is a jersey that's central to that particular scene. So that's what I mean, where there are certain moments in which football, even though it might not be the central 
focus of the film, it is still very much so important, whether it's a plot parentheses of sorts in which we spend some time uh, dealing with football, it is very much so important. In this particular uh, moment where the boys play soccer without a ball, we do see a young man running around wearing the Leo Messi shirt from FC Barcelona in Spain. And that's also an interesting question. Why is it that it's Messi and not some other player? In most of my uh, observations, something that I find very interesting and I wanted to know more about is why is it that most examples that we see of soccer jerseys or references to soccer are either European-based or uh, Latin America-based or anywhere but Africa. And with one, with one particular exception to the rule, and that's from Jean-Pierre Becolo, Cameroonian filmmaker, who features in his films, especially the president from 2013, the national Cameroonian soccer jersey, both the home and the away version, the yellow and the green, as opposed to, uh, again, all these other examples like Inter Milan from, uh, from, from Italy, FC Barcelona. Uh, you see, sometimes you see uh, British uh, uh, jerseys, a lot of French uh, national, the national soccer team, the national French soccer team jerseys. But again, very few actual teams from Africa, whether at the club or national level, except in the case of Bekolo. And in that case, it becomes a political message. So these are uh, sort of the corpus, one would say, some of the major films that I deal with, plus the novel by Fatou Diom. And then I'm also interested in things like uh, artistic exhibits, for example, Tehinde Wiley, you know, he... The, the, the guy who painted President Obama's portrait. He's also famously painted uh, Samuel Eto, who's a Cameroonian soccer player and um, other actually soccer players. And he's got a very distinctive style. And so I, I was also interested in searching and sort of analyzing that genre, that artistic genre of, of painting. It's really fascinating to hear the degree to which you're thinking about sort of peripheral objects and items in the mise-en-scene, like the degree to which like soccer is a kind of uh, substrate underneath what whatever is happening in the film that occasionally bubbles to the surface rather than a feature of the film. And I think that that's particularly interesting in the case of Africa, where there must be something to do with colonialism. You know, it's a sort of topic that we can't talk about Africa without, you know, thinking about the history of colonialism, the, the presence of colonialism. Could you say a little bit about the cultural role of soccer in Africa more broadly, particularly in terms of, you know, its colonial past and present? Uh, yes, I certainly can. Although I will make a point to say that that's not really a, a big focus in my book, the historical background. I will uh, say that I have been inspired by uh, a colleague at MSU, uh, Peter Aligi, who in 2010 wrote a fantastic book called African Soccerscapes. So in that book, actually, he touches on the sort of colonial remnants uh, a lot more than I do in, 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 in my book, which and what I prefer doing or what I chose to do rather is untangle the meanings behind representation of soccer jerseys currently. I look less at the, at the colonial period, but of course, culturally speaking, uh, football is brought onto the continent as a way to control the masses, as a way to 
perhaps bring in the, the famous mission civilatrice, which is a French term for civilizing mission, what uh, an, ex an ex colonizing power like France was, was aiming to do on the continent. So using the game and its, its um, qualities to further their control and their penetration into the continent. And of course, uh, one of the things that happened was that by uh, allowing people to get together at the local level, you know, so uh, people who put clubs together in neighborhoods that are perhaps outside of the main cities, it created a network that ended up becoming a rebellious act against the colonizing forces. Very much so, actually, one thing that I, I love about the trajectory of football on the continent is that it anticipates really how African film much later in the 1960s becomes what it is today and splits from European norms and context. So we, there, there is a sort of parallel here in which you know, slowly uh, soccer becomes more and more African through several, because of several reasons, one of them political, but other reasons, you know, the whenever you include spectatorship, spect spectators are different all over the world. You might consider influences from outside the game, such as the practice, the practices of magic. Uh, so uh, all of these things have contributed over the years to splitting football from its sort of European hold, and it becomes more and more localized, more and more, quote unquote, African. And similarly, a similar trajectory occurs, uh, I believe, at least I believe that that occurs in, in, in cinema. But I think the colonial remnants or moving into the neocolonial, where I can say something that's perhaps more specific to my work, is that I remain in this book very much so attached to a term like neocolonial, which many scholars right now are moving away from. And, you know, we prefer as a field, for example, the term neoliberal um, and the inclusion of uh, Africa, African cinema on the wider uh, stage of world cinema and the influence of a you know, global and free market and competition and all those things. The reason why I am sticking to the neocolonial uh, term for this particular book it's twofold. One is you actually, when you did the summary of my book, you referred to one of the main tensions that I tried to identify in my book, which is that the system, whether colonial or neocolonial, flattens the physical body of people. And then art through film in particular and filmmakers, it, they try to fill those bodies up, uh, you know, kind of give them shape, make them three-dimensional, give them volume. Right. So that's basically kind of the process of contributing to the process of self-affirmation. So to me, it was important to stick to neocolonialism as the continued effect of colonialism in today's age. The second uh, reason why I decided that I can do this is uh, a film like Atlantics, actually, by Mati Diop, which came out at about the time when I was doing when I was proofreading the book. So it was a little late to include it but I'm including it in, the next, uh, in my next book. And that film is about the great trauma of slavery and of colonialism because it features the return of the dead. And the return of the dead, generally speaking, you know, is a marker of a, uh, a great trauma that hasn't really appropriately been, been dealt with in our sort of world consciousness, right? So, uh, so if things are still coming back as of 2019, to me, 
we can still argue for the existence of uh, neocolonialism today. It's particularly interesting through the lens of, of football, because you're pointing out in your first answer in here that there's this tension between wanting to take the game that's been introduced to the continent and make it uniquely African, that it's imbued with you know, references to local rituals and local thoughts and beliefs and practices. But also, as you pointed out earlier, that a lot of the fantasizing around football and football stardom is European or Latin American directed. They're celebrating Italian players. They're celebrating South American clubs. Could you say a little bit about like what the football fantasy is like in Africa and what, or in the regions that you're looking at perhaps more specifically and sort of how that fantasy interacts with the cinematic products you're dealing with? Absolutely. So actually fantasy is a term that is equally complex and as, as the previous one that I was talking about neo, neo-colonial um, and perhaps contested or as contested as neo-colonial nowadays. And I guess when I say fantasy, I should make a mention that that's a psychoanalytical term. So it means that I'm applying psychoanalysis to the study of cinema. Now, that in itself is not problematic because psychoanalysis does lend itself to the analysis of cinema, but perhaps less so to African cinema specifically. We have a long history of people who have used psychoanalysis as the uh, as lens through which to analyze African film, including my de facto mentor, mentor uh, Ken Harrow from, from Michigan State University. But there are other big names uh, who have done this, uh, David Murphy over in England. Laura Mulvey has written about Semben and uh, used psychoanalysis. But why is this problematic? Still, it is problematic because we're applying a very much so European theory or framework to uh, analyzing or getting at the meaning of uh, what African film is trying to tell us or what African directors are trying to tell us. While problematic, I think that there is still value to using that as long as we are aware of those pitfalls and as long as we try to sort of reshape not African film to fit psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis itself to work better for African film, which is what I'm trying to do in the first part of the book. So I'm taking this concept of, of fantasy, right? So like if a fantasy comes from, from Freud and the famous original uh, fantasy, which is called The Child is Being be- Beaten, right? So it goes from the active sadistic stage of uh, my father is beating the child to my father is beating me to a child is being beaten, right? To this passive impersonal way of dealing with it. My point was we can't just take that structure of fantasy and simply apply it to uh, Africa without taking into consideration the relationship between colonized and colonizer, which oftentimes has like a fatherly tinge to it, right? So one of, one of the questions that I ask in this book is like, what happens when we actually end up traversing the fantasy, to use another term, and we have Senegal in 1998 beating France at their own game at the World Cup on the largest stage. So what is the result of that in terms of fandom and how come we don't see more Senegalese shirts, you know, represented in the tradition of Senegalese cinema, and yet we still see French uh, clubs or the national team represented rather 
it's a question with, without a clear answer. But what I'm trying to do is, again, reshape psychoanalysis itself and propose uh, some added steps or terms that would make it easier to, to apply uh, this new version of psychoanalysis to African cinema. I'm, I'm not the first one to have done it. And most famously, Franz Fanon talked about reworking psychoanalysis to include um, the presence of the colonial father into, into all of these things. And you now fantasy, the manifestation, the, the material manifestation of the fantasy of playing in Europe is the soccer jersey. And this is where things get very interesting because the soccer jersey is uh, technically what we call an objet petit a, and that that that's a, that's that's in French from Lacan, but uh, I will uh, say it's the unattainable object of desire, right? It's a it's a remnant of what Lacan called the real or das Ding that has gone through partial symbolization, and so it reminds us of something that we can't really put our finger on. It's material, and yet it's also kind of nothing at all, as Zizak says. It's important that I notice, or that we notice, these examples of football in the background, because that means it's not really fully materialized. So the representation of football itself is kind of, we become aware of it by, by looking awry. Again, as Zizak said, I, I, I use a, quite a bit of Zizak in my, in my work because I find it more palatable than just pure Freud, pure Lacan. I think he, he does, in spite of him being a controversial figure, I, I think he does a good job with this. So it's, it's somewhere in the background, it's not really in your face. And then the second in, uh, interesting thing here about the uh, unattainable object of desire Zizak also calls the, this object uh, nothing in itself. So then these jerseys that these kids are wearing in African film are actually knockoffs. And I'm not knocking off <laughs> the fact that, because I, I have plenty of soccer jerseys that are not the quote-unquote authentic, you know, it's just something to wear. But the very fact that they are a copy of a copy further removes them from that uh, reality and makes them more so great examples of this unattainable object of desire that keeps reminding young people or pushing young Africans towards this fictitious El Dorado that is Europe. Now, things have changed drastically. Europe might not be at the center of the world. Uh, many African scholars have, or Africanists have, have written about this, but we still have these examples in, uh, in African film. One, one movie I haven't mentioned before, 2013, The Pirogue by Moussa Touré from Senegal features a father who promises his young boy the famed FC Barcelona jersey. He, he wants, he's going to, the father's going to immigrate to Spain uh, on a boat. He says, when I come back, I will bring you the Barcelona jersey. And he fails. He doesn't get to, to Spain on his way back. He stops in a market in Dakar and buys a knockoff. And then he's like, no, he's not going to know the difference. And it's a lovely, lovely gesture, right? He's keeping his promise as a father. But in doing that, he also perpetuates this fantasy through this doubly fake removed object that is the soccer, the soccer jersey. So the new generation might also continue to think that, well, you know, I just have to make it. I, just, I have to go to, to Europe and become a footballer. You know, other characters will say things like, look at my legs as soon as they see me. Uh, they, they, they will hire me. I'll be a footballer right away. 
So uh, it, it abounds, African film, uh, at least in, in my area, Francophone Sub-Sahara, abounds with exam- such examples of perpetuating this fantasy. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Vlad Dima, author of The Beautiful Skin, Football, Fantasy, and Cinematic Bodies in Africa. You know, that description that you offer of how many of these jerseys are knockoffs, I think really drives the point home about the unattainable object of the desire, the fantasy entailed in the jersey as a as an object, as an item something that you drape over your body to signal affiliation with some team or some nation. It's really powerful to think that it's not just the thing itself is fake, but the the notion, the fantasy that it stands for is unattainable as well. I wonder if we could turn the conversation slightly back from the jersey just a bit to think about the place of the body in your analysis. You talk about the jersey as a kind of skin. And a lot of the reading in the book is dependent on thinking about, you know, the body, the body as a skinned thing, as a, as a signaling force in the world. Could you talk a little bit about the way that these films are constructing identity around particular bodies? Great question. Um, I will, before I answer, actually, I, I wanted to go back to your point about the fakeness of jerseys and re- enforce the fact or underline the fact that in Jean-Pierre Becolo's films, we do see seemingly so the very authentic national soccer team jersey for Cameroon in both in, in, in green and in yellow. That actually underlines its political message and its political power, a call for unity within the country in contrast with all these other versions that are not the real thing. Uh, very much so. So I think Becolo is very effective in his messaging through this object uh, about uh, political stability, political change, even, you know, trusting the new generation and so on and so forth. I'm very happy you asked about skin because the funny thing about this book in many ways is that people uh, ask me a lot of questions about football nowadays and they consider me a soccer specialist, of which I am not. I I am very much so a fan of of football, and this book was very much so a pretext to talk about football, but to get to what really interests me, which is cinema. I'm doing it properly, and I'm I'm giving, you know, doing justice to the topic of psychoanalysis and football, but eventually I get to this idea of the skin of cinema, which is the thing that interested me the most when I started writing this book. So another way to think about skin and the body on how I con- construct this book, uh, which technically is actually three books. It's got these three major chapters, um, the beautiful fantasy, the beautiful game, and the beautiful skin. One dealing with uh, psychoanalysis, one with football, and one with cinema. So that's sort of the trajectory, and they're connected through skin. It's actually uh, not to <laughs> beat the metaphor to death, but they're, they're, they're wrapped into one skin through skin. So if you think about psychoanalysis to me and going back to Zizek, he uses this term veil, so a fantasy as a veil. So to me, that, that, that calls to mind clothing, actually, but it's way outside the body. So my work, this book starts with the layer that covers us way outside the body in the first part. Then it moves to the second part of foot, with football and football jerseys, and that's the layer that covers our body, so a little closer to us. It's also what one might call a a second skin. That's actually not my term. It comes from 
uh, well, many people have used it, but most famously, uh, this professor from Princeton, An, An Cheng, who wrote about uh, Josephine Baker, and her book is called uh, Second Skin. And then finally, in the last uh, part of the book, I finally get to bodies and to film as a body itself. So finally, so way outside, just outside the body, and then the body itself. That's the trajectory of the book through the metaphor of, uh, of skin. And in this last part, I look at uh, diegetically inside the films at naked bodies, at skins that reflect kind of like a canvas does, at um, moments where film sort of seems to evoke a materiality, a physicality that's really kind of in your face, uh, in our faces, that pierces through the skin and suggests a contact that's made with, uh, with the spectators. I can also uh, give one quick, one quick example here. Besides the naked skin, there are moments in um, not just in African film where the camera, the frame of the camera matches perfectly an image that's inside the film. It could be a poster, it could be a painting. And the moment I'm thinking about in particular comes from a 2002 film by Mahamat Arun Saleh from Chad. Uh, the movie is called Abuna, Our Father. So uh, the <laughs> metaphor of the father or missing father, colonial father is uh, already in the title actually. And these boys uh, receive a poster from their, of, of the ocean from their father who had left them actually. So they're looking at this poster and then the camera perfectly, the frame of the camera perfectly matches this poster. But as, as we all know, a poster, for example, that's put on a wall kind of hastily uh, has creases, right? So uh, moments later, one of the boys kind of just reaches from below and touches this image of the ocean where he thinks his father might be. And when he does that, the, the, the paper cringles and makes a noise and just keeps sort of like doing these, these, these waves. But the image of the poster, the skin, which is a skin, basically, pellicule, right, in French means small skin, comes from Latin. Uh, so like film itself, what, what, we, what we make films on could be considered a skin in itself. But here you have that materialization of what is being shot and what we see, the image, the poster, sort of shaping under the weight of one's hand physically. Uh, so that's one example of like where poster is kind of like a synecdoche for cinema itself, right? Cinema is 24 frames per second. We just see one frame in that particular moment. So we both have to deal, we, we deal here with a deconstruction of uh, what film is to its founding cell and then creating from that volume and the suggestion of death uh, and again of a body. So that's, that's one particular example where, where we can see sort of the skin of film working. In the introduction, I mentioned that you see in a lot of films depictions of bodies being emptied out, like as being made into skin. So I think that you're, the description that you just gave of the poster and the sort of idea of cinema as a kind of skin, I think that makes a lot of sense, like that there's a way in which it's a, it's a medium that can be filled with the content it's a way of inter interfacing with viewers and others how does the colonial or the sort of neo-colonial body you know appear in these films in in a way that made 
made you think of skin as that kind of medium, you know, where, where the film is taking the place of something that, that the body is doing, you know, in other contexts that aren't sort of colonized and emptied out. Yeah. So uh, I'm not talking about an em- uh, a literal emptying out. I am just tracing examples in African film, even if we take what's considered to be the first African film, Black Girl by Semben, uh, 1966. Uh, it's the story of uh, a young woman who's a nanny and uh, moves from Dakar to France to take care of a white family's children. And but she's being mistreated and ends up uh, killing herself. So my point here is that the system, the neocolonial system as of 1966, what it does is that it empties her of identity and subjectivity, or it it, uh, does not allow the African subject to gain traction, to gain volume, to gain depth, to be a fully functioning member of society. In that particular case, actually, the the, the suicide is by, by cutting her, her, uh, uh, her wrists, which suggests an emptying of the body of blood, right? So she is deflated, as it were. Uh, she doesn't, you know, have, you know, blood in her body anymore. And these kind of situations occur quite a bit throughout uh, from 1966 to 2020. Galois, 1992 by Ousmane uh, begins with the death of a character. And then we see when people uh, mourn him, we only see his emptied suit on a bed, for example. So there's no body there. It's just the skin, the second second skin really that replaces him and it happens to be a European suit which is problematic but that's a whole different uh, story. So then all these examples there's several such examples in which characters are uh, by, by the way I also work quite a bit with the I'm interested in the undead and representations uh, vampiric representations and things like that so the vampire also is one of those figures that sucks the life out of people and empties them um, and that can be applied to multiple contexts, uh, class wars also, not just, uh, not just political warfares. So you take something like this, that's the uh, diegetic reality. These are the stories that are being told and what happens to the people in those stories. And then you, we counteract this with analysis focusing on how these directors actually attempt to give life back. Right? to make them full again, to make these characters three-dimensional, to give them depth. And uh, there are lots of ways in which uh, this occurs, but then the film itself also must somehow match what is happening to the character. So the film itself has to be filled out in some ways, right? And that's why I think that there is a body of film. The best example I can give is, uh, I'm gonna go back now to Jean-Pierre Becolo, the Cameroonian director, uh, he has a film called Naked Reality from 2017. Now, originally, this film was put on a website. To my mind, the only time that this has happened, uh, he put this film on a website and he asked people to go in and contribute. Basically say, like, if you know how to change colors, do it. If you know how to add things like objects or whatever, do it. So the film itself, it's kind of like an empty shell. Like you see characters walking around like a stage that's empty, no color, black and white, uh, no objects. And then people were able to add to it, basically. That, to, my, to my mind, this is the only such case where uh, generally, you know, because whenever I say like, but, you know, film touches us and people are like, oh, no, not, <laughs> not physically. 
although I mean it also physically, this is the one example where the two-way street is very clear between audience and, and, and film, like audience actually reaching inside the film as opposed to the usual direction, just film towards the audience. So in that case, you know, the body plays a huge part, the body of the spectator itself, we, our literal hands might be going into that film to create a final, a final product. While at the same time, the film itself fills up as we add these, these things, gets, gets to be fuller, again, if you, if you will. So the last thing I'll say about skin here and the skin of film, because I want to give proper credit also to, you know, I'm not the, the first person to think about the skin of film. Uh, of course, we have a pretty big name in this area, um, Laura Marx, who was the first one to talk about what we call haptic images. So images that we can't really decode, decipher immediately, right? So images that are a little hazy, um, like the beginning of Hiroshima Monamur, for example, by René, that's a classic example. So we can't really understand what's going on. So when you can't understand what's going on, our eyes glide at the surface of the film. The surface of the film becomes obvious when we can't understand and we can't make sense of what we're seeing. So you know, again, if you can't penetrate beyond, that means that there is something blocking us and that is a type of skin that's covering uh, film. And what I do basically to move this argument forward is consider the possibility that once an image is impenetrable and that can be, that can mean many different things where we can't understand it, there is a trace that carries on to the next shot and the next shot and the next shot that sort of perpetuates the possibility of, of, of a skin. Perhaps it's not as thick a skin, but it still remains there. And that's, uh, it gets a little complicated. I, I use uh, an argument I make actually in sound studies earlier in my career and apply it to visual. And that in itself is something that is dear to my heart because I, I have worked for 10 plus years at reversing the order in which we look at things or analyze things in film, meaning image plus sound. And I, I generally think of them as sound plus image, or at least I try, try to teach my students how to do that kind of exercise. And African film is also another context in which this is very much so possible because of experimentation and, uh, and other things. But in that particular case, it's, it's again, I'm taking a, an argument about sonics and about sound, and I'm applying it to uh, the haptic images, Laura Marx's haptic images, to say that actually this image continues to show us its skin, even once it becomes readable. You know, you mentioned in your last response that this is a kind of continuation of the work that you were doing in your first book. You know, your, your new book is about meaninglessness. And there's a lot of interesting questions, I think, that linger in The Beautiful Skin about kind of what you were talking about just there, about what happens when you know, an image is impenetrable or when you when you finally do penetrate an image and you're you know, you see the skin and the meaning beneath and maybe the meaning isn't quite what you thought it was going to be or that there's some sort of disconnect between, you know, meanings at different layers of symbolism. I wonder how does the work that you're doing now you know, continue to develop your thinking in the beautiful skin about uh, cinema in Africa and, you know, the other issues we've been discussing? That's a great question. One of the things, actually, I will go back to mentioning Atlantics, to when I mentioned Atlantics earlier, and that was a film that struck me as a sort of 
moment of change in how we think about African film. And it's a, so it's a, it's a film made by a, Sen- a Franco-Senegalese woman. She, was, she really was born in France and raised in France, but she is the niece of uh, Jibril Jogmambeti, the subject of my first book. And so she comes from this, this tremendously uh, talented family. Her father is a jazz musician, Wasis Job. And um, her film is besides uh, a return to the question that, of fantasy that has interest, interested me for years, it's also a film that very much so lives in between what we might consider Africa proper and what we might consider France proper, because her take on fantasy, her take on a love story, her take on vampirism, actually, or the undead or zombies, there's arguments to be made for all those things, does not fall within one culture. It's very much so cross-cultural. And this is a film that's actually concerned with crossings of all types, of all sorts, including that between life and death. So I, um, I, I think it's the perfect, and I spent an entire chapter on it, it's a perfect film to reconsider the relationship and hierarchies between global north and global south and south and continue to aim for what we call what we Africanists call sort of a horizontal relationship. This comes from Achille Membe, uh, meaning we want to put African film at the same level with all other film and just do away with comparisons and uh, sort of uh, influences that might exist or not exist and uh, just have Africa be an equal player on the world stage in terms of uh, film production. And I think this film, because it lives in between two worlds, uh, it accomplishes that. So that's one, one thing. Um, now, this book also connects back to uh, Beautiful Skin and a very brief commentary that I have on Beautiful Skin about Atlantics. It goes back to this. Other than that, I don't think it uh, overlaps that much because you know I wrote this book in the time of COVID and everything was just sort of slowed down. So it ended up, ends up being a book about time and a book about life and death, like the <laughs> and love, the major questions. It tries to do a lot, and uh, hopefully I I can I can bring it home. One last thing I'll say is that I'm also trying with uh, meaninglessness to enter the discussion of the taxonomy of image, meaning that things like Deleuze's time image or um, movement image, expressions that we've used to describe film in general, just like I said with psychoanalysis, should not as easily be applied to African film. So I'm trying to find the correct or a more correct, an improvement in terms of vocabulary to use to describe how the African image makes meaning. That's, that's one of the main goals of what I'm trying to say. And I'm, I'm working on that through questions of rhythm, through connections with the movement of negritude, to connections with uh, the poet Leopold Sedar Senghor, uh, and the novels of uh, Wisman Semben. So again, I'm trying to take African film and disconnect it entirely from, from, from Europe and find its roots in African philosophy, African literature, and African ideas about time, life, and death. Yeah, no, it sounds really great. And we're going to definitely look forward to that. I think, uh, Vlad, that's probably a good place to leave it. I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today. I've so enjoyed listening to you uh, and chatting with you about the beautiful skin and thinking about all of the different attempts that you've made to do precisely what you said there, which is to take 
African cinema on its own terms to think about how it forces us to rethink, you know, what we understand about psychoanalysis and film theory. And I really encourage folks uh, who are interested in football and fantasy and cinema in Africa to be sure to check out The Beautiful Skin. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you. The Beautiful Skin, Football, Fantasy, and Cinematic Bodies in Africa is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Books.